Glorious God, it is the flame of our lives to worship you, the crown and the glory of our souls to adore you, heavenly pleasure to approach you. We pray that you give us power by your Holy Spirit to worship you now. May we forget the world. May we be brought into the fullness of life. May we be refreshed and comforted and blessed. Give us knowledge of your goodness and your mercy so that we would not be overwhelmed by your greatness. Give us Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, so that we might not be terrified, but might draw near with filial love and with holy boldness. Jesus is our mediator, our brother. He is the Lamb of God who took away our sins, and we gather this day to glorify him and to set him on high. May we live in a manner worthy of our Savior. May we be free from distractions or mindless cares. May we be set free from hindrances to the pursuit of the narrow way. We are pardoned through the blood of Jesus And we pray this day that you give us a new sense of that pardon. May we come each day to the fountain of our forgiveness and be washed anew. May we worship you always in spirit and in truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we come to an important turning point. In the uh, letter to the Romans, uh, this morning we switch from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. You grammar experts will know what I'm talking about. Personally, I don't think I studied this stuff in high school, so I had to look it up, the difference between the indicative and the imperative. Apparently in English there are three so-called moods, the indicative, the imperative, and the subjunctive. I think there's a fourth one in Greek, maybe a fifth. And this morning we reach the point in the letter to the Romans where Paul shifts abruptly from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. Do you have a slide there from Merriam-Webster? There it is. This is what Merriam-Webster, this is how they explain grammatical mood. Let me read this for you. A particular set of inflectional forms of a verb to express whether the action or state it denotes is conceived as fact or in some other manner such as command, possibility, or wish. Did you get that? That's very complicated. This is very, this is higher level grammar, okay? But here's the upshot. A sentence can be a statement of fact. For example, the Eagles won the Super Bowl last year. That's a statement of fact. And that sentence is in the indicative mood. A sentence can also be a statement of possibility, conditionality, or desire. A month ago, I might have said, I hope the Eagles win the Super Bowl again this year. That's a statement of desire. And so that sentence is in the subjunctive mood. And finally, a sentence can be a command. For example, don't talk to me about the stupid New England Patriots. That's a command. And that's in the imperative mood. Now, this week, in our reading from the letter to the Romans, we shift abruptly from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. We shift from statements of fact... 
to commands. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has been laying out the gospel. He talks about sin and the fallen human condition. Those are facts. Pure and simple. People are born into sin. They're born into the fall. Uh, Paul then talks about the atoning death of Jesus. That's done once and for all time. Accomplished fact. And Paul talks about justification by grace alone through faith alone, which are objective theological truths. They are facts about the nature of God's plan of salvation. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul lays out the gospel and he does it entirely in the indicative mood. He's just making statements of fact. He's telling us how it is. Listen to these indicative sentences, these statements of fact. The wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Statement of fact. None is righteous, no, not one. Statement of fact. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Statement of fact. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Statement of fact. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Statement of fact. All of those sentences are in the indicative mood. Paul is describing objective reality. He's telling it like it is. And then consider one final sentence. A sentence that was, that is so complicated in the Greek that I had to consult with, uh, Barry Hofstetter to unravel the grammar and I'm still a little uh, fuzzy about it. The sentence looks like it might be subjunctive, but it's actually what uh, is called future passive indicative. So it reads this way. If we could have it up on the screen. If you confess with your mouth, that sounds subjunctive. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and now we get the future passive indicative regulating verb here, you will be saved. So those verses that I read for you are the sum of the gospel. They're laid out in those first 11 chapters of Romans. They're all in this indicative mood. They're all statements of objective fact about who we are, about who God is, and about how God saves people. But now in chapter 12, Paul shifts from the indicative to the imperative mood, and he begins to tell us what to do. Oh, and for those of you who like application in your preaching, for those of you who prefer practical sermons, for those of you who get a little frustrated when someone like me spends all of his time talking about exegesis and history and theology, for those of you who like it when a pastor gets down to brass tacks and tells you what to do and how to live your life, you're in luck because the indicative mood is all about application. Practical preacher is a preacher who uses, I'm sorry, not the indicative, the imperative. A practical preacher is a preacher who's using the imperative all of the time. Okay, so what I want to do now is actually read for you the whole of Romans chapter 12. I'm only going to preach the first two verses, but I want you to hear the whole chapter so that you get a sense of what Paul is doing and where he's going. So let's hear the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. In zeal be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Live in harmony. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. So the imperative mood is imperious, it barks commands, it tells you what to do, and it tells you how to do it. As we were reading through chapter 12, I hope you heard the rapid fire series of commands that the Apostle Paul barks out like a battlefield general. Listen again as I read just the imperatives, just the direct commands from chapter 12. Present your body a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Think with sober judgment. Use your gifts. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Love one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. Feed your enemies. Give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Bam, 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 bam. 34 commands in just 21 verses. Those are direct commands from the Word of God. Those are your marching orders. That's enough personal application to hold you for a year. And to warn you, chapter 12 doesn't exhaust all of the commands that Paul is going to have. He goes on in 13, 14, and 15 with more and more commands. You can think of the first 11 chapters of Roman as all about how it is that we are saved... In those chapters, we learn that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by good works that we perform. We're saved by faith and not by living a holy life. And then you can think about what follows in chapter 12 through 16 as being all about now that we are saved, how should we live? In the chapters to come, we will learn how to perform good works and how to live holy lives. The first 11 chapters are for people who are on their way to faith in Christ. And the rest of it is for those who are already in Christ. And the hinge between these two sections in Paul's letter comes in those first two verses of Romans chapter 12. They read this way. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there are two big ideas in this passage, and I want to work through them in sequence. The first big idea is that in light of God's mercies, it is reasonable for us to present our entire selves, our bodies, is how Paul puts it, as a living sacrifice to God. In other words, God's mercies are so extraordinary, they're so excessive, that anything less than a total handover of our entire selves would be less than reasonable. And the second big idea is that Such a living sacrifice means that we live in a way that is different from how the world lives. And that such a different kind of living requires a changed way of thinking. So let me begin with the living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how it reads in the ESV translation. A footnote in the ESV Uh, offers an alternative to spiritual worship uh, using the phrase rational service, which is better. I think the King James Version is better yet. It talks about reasonable service. R.C. Sproul might have the best translation, which is 100% literal, and his translation is logical worship. Paul's point is this, that it is reasonable, that it is rational, That it is logical for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And why does that make so much sense to Paul? Because the mercies of God are so excessive. What are the mercies of God? Well, how about the fact that we've been justified by faith? 
How about the fact that our sins have been washed away by the death of Christ? How about the fact that we're going to heaven and not going to hell? How about the fact that God works all things for our good? How about the fact that God calls to himself a special people? And that's just for starters. In light of the mercies that God has shown us, it is reasonable, it is logical, it is rational for us to present our whole selves, our bodies, as living sacrifices to God. I get frustrated when people talk about faith as though it were somehow contrary to reason, as though it were somehow irrational. Nothing could be more sensible than obeying the creator of the universe. It is crazy to not obey and worship God. It is eminently reasonable to give him everything that we are because he's given everything to us. Now notice how Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why didn't he say, present your spirits as living sacrifices? Or why didn't he say, present your souls as living sacrifices? As Christians, we often are not physical enough with our faith and our worship. We think that being a Christian is all about what we believe and not about what we do. Well, Paul sets us straight on that point. Present your bodies a living sacrifice is the command. Think of the seven deadly sins, and don't shout out when I name your favorite one. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, envy, wrath, Pride. How many of those seven are rooted in our bodies as opposed to our minds or our spirits? Certainly three. Maybe four, possibly five. Now, I'm not saying that the body is entirely sinful. But if you manage to control the sins of your body, you're going to be well on your way to living a holy life. I know I would. Sometimes when we think of controlling the sins of the body, we dig out that old-fashioned phrase, mortifying the flesh. And we think of hermits and ascetics living celibate lives in desert retreats, living on nothing but bread and water, sleeping on stone beds, enjoying no fleshly pleasures. That's an extreme version of mortifying the flesh. The phrase mortifying the flesh means literally killing the body, But notice that Paul does not command us to kill the body. Rather, he tells us to present our body alive as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What would that look like for you? To present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What would that look like? If you made it your project this week... To present your body a living sacrifice to God, what would you do with your body this week that you did not do last week? Or maybe more to the point, what would you not do with your body this week that you did do last week? It's not an easy thing to control our bodies. 
For the most part, it seems like we take orders from our bodies rather than telling our bodies what to do. We eat when we're hungry. We sleep when we're tired. We drink when we're thirsty. And we binge on Netflix when we're bored. For the most part, it seems like our bodies control us. And yet, self-control, which involves control of our bodies, is key to the Christian life. We read in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's that last one? Self-control. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices is largely a matter of self-control. The first big idea of our reading this morning is that in light of all that God has done for us, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, which requires self-control, is reasonable. It's our rational service to God. The second big idea of our passage this morning is that living sacrifice means that we live in a way that is different from how the world lives. And that a different kind of living requires a different kind of thinking. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Christians need to get used to the idea that being a Christian means we will look different from the rest of the non-Christian world. Now, there are a lot of Christians in this world, but the values and the fundamental beliefs of this age, the values and the beliefs that are embraced and actively promoted in the marketplace, in politics, in the media, in the entertainment industry, the values and fundamental beliefs of this world are not the same as those of God. Just a simple example. I was reading the advice column from the Philadelphia Inquirer this past week, and a woman writes in because she wants to have children, but her boyfriend, who's been living with her for the past five years, doesn't want kids. What should I do? She asks. I love him, but having children is really important to me. Should I throw him out? That's what she's asking. And I'm thinking, sister, you're asking the wrong questions. The question should be, why am I living with and having sex with someone I'm not married to? Why do I love a man who will live with me for five years, but not honor me by marrying me? Why am I willing to be impregnated by someone who is not my husband? Those are the questions that woman needs to be asking. Because scripture is crystal clear on this issue. We read in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. She's worrying about having kids. She should be worrying about getting to heaven. Now the Philadelphia Inquirer is a nice, middle-of-the-road family newspaper. It is not radical. It is not cutting edge. It's not particularly wicked. But it simply reflects the values and the beliefs of this age. And those values and beliefs are fundamentally different 
from what God teaches. And Christians, as people who believe the Word of God, we need to get used to the idea that what we believe and what the world believe are not the same. And that can be kind of tough for some of us, particularly those of us who are accustomed to ruling in this world. Paul, of course, was writing to a Christian church living in Rome, which must have been quite a wild place in the first century A.D. A thousand and one gods were being worshipped, an economy built on slave labor. Absolutely no boundaries on sexual behavior, none, zero zilch. People killed and mutilated in the Colosseum for the entertainment of ticket-buying audiences. Rome was a wicked place. Though I'm sure that the people who lived there at the time thought it was the best and most interesting place on earth, the big apple of the ancient world. As the West, as the United States, repaganizes, Christians need to get used to the idea that public values and public morals are not always the same as Christian values and Christian morals. Paul warns his readers against being conformed to the world that they're living in. And we need to ask ourselves, how conformed am I to the world that I live in? Am I more upset with what I read in Scripture than with what I listen to on the radio or read in the paper or view on a screen? Do I find my morality more often aligns with comedians on late night television than with the apostles? Do I shout amen more often to the preaching of the atheist Bill Mayer than to the exhortation? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. I've only seen, I've only seen a print. I've never heard him speak it. Than to the exhortations of the martyr Saint Peter. Don't get me wrong. Bill Mayer is a funny guy. He's a witty guy. But he's also the guy who said, and I quote, I think that the people who think God wrote a book called the Bible are just childish. Religion is so childish. How many people who call themselves Christians spend more time each week listening to Bill Mayer and his ilk, you know the names, than they spend listening to the Word of God? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, no matter how funny it is. I hope you understand that this has nothing to do with being modern. Paul makes his warning, do not be conformed to the world. He makes his warning 2,000 years ago. Nothing is new. The values promoted in our culture today are not up-to-date and modern. In fact, they are pagan and wonderfully old-fashioned. Paul sets a renewal of the mind in opposition to conformity. The Christian mind is a different mind. It is a new mind. It is a fresh mind. It is an illuminated mind. It is a spirit-filled mind. And the Christian mind does not think like the worldly mind. Transformed minds and bodies Presented as living sacrifices. I think that's a pretty good description of the Christian life. Because the gospel has somehow gotten hold of us, our minds are changed. And we begin to see things differently than we used to. And then because we see things differently, we begin to act little by little 
differently. And the way that we live in our bodies becomes a kind of spiritual worship, a kind of sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. This morning, I rattled off 34 commands that appear in chapter 12. We'll dig into them separately in the weeks ahead. But let me just say simply as we close that when we begin to live according to those commands, when we love one another, when we show hospitality, when we don't think of ourselves more highly than we should, when we're patient in tribulation, when we begin to live according to those commands, our lives are a sacrifice to Almighty God. Our lives become spiritual worship. So I want to send you home today with one small challenge and one encouragement. This week, as you catch yourself obeying one command or another that you find in God's Word, if you catch yourself rejoicing in hope or abhorring evil, I want you to say to yourself, my life is a living sacrifice. Because in that moment... When you are following God's word, you are presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And here's the crazy part. When you're following God's word and presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, your sacrifice, your life is holy and it's acceptable to God. See if that doesn't blow your mind. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. We Confess that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are bigger than our thoughts. We pray this morning that uh, by the power of your spirit you would settle into our hearts things which are true, things which are noble, things which are honoring to you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have the mind of Christ. And I pray that as our mind looks more and more like the mind of Christ, that our lives would look more and more like the life of Christ. And we pray that you would be pleased with that and that you would accept our lives uh, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.